We are going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Um, and we are in verse, your, your notes may say verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, but it's actually going to be chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. But, um, That's in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you will, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, you have withheld nothing. You are utterly and entirely generous. You give to your people all that they need for life and for godliness. And so today, Lord God, we come and we sit to hear your word to listen to what you might have to say through the book of Ecclesiastes and how it might encourage us and challenge us and admonish us and exhort us. And I pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us by your spirit through your word, that we might love you more. Lord, I pray that we gain knowledge of your word, that we gain knowledge of you. But I pray, Lord God, that ultimately... That knowledge fosters a love that is beyond comprehension. That we would love you more than this life. We would love you more than ourselves. We would love you, Lord God, more than our idols. So that our love for you would cause us to destroy the idols in our lives. So be merciful to us today and help us, Lord God, in Christ's name. Amen. Approximately 2,500 years ago, a young woman, a woman of some status, was presented with a dilemma. And the dilemma was that she had received some inside information. She, the inside information was that her people those of her heritage were going to be slaughtered. This was going to be a genocide. As I mentioned, she was a woman of status. She was a queen. And her desire then was to go to her husband, the king, and seek a remedy that her people would not be slaughtered. There were a couple of issues, however. One of the issues was that the king had signed the decree to slaughter her people. I think he did so unknowingly, but that he was the one who signed it. The second one is that the king had the authority to put to death anybody who entered into his presence. So he had the authority to slay her or he had the authority to keep her alive. And so Esther, the queen, was persuaded that risking her life to save her people was worth the risk. And she famously said, well, I will go to the king. And she famously said, if I perish, I perish. 
And here we are 2,500 years later, and we still admire those words. We still think of Esther in in an admirable and a dignified way as a woman of faith who said, I don't care if I perish, I perish. My faith is leading me to take this risk. So today we are continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes. And let me give you a brief reminder of where we have been. The author, Solomon, who is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, he's referred to as the preacher Basically, he has asked the question, this very simple question, one that you and I have probably asked at some point in in time, and that is, what is the meaning of life? What is life all about? And the preacher, Solomon, began to explore what is the meaning of life, and he left no stone unturned in his quest for an answer. He was a man who had um, accomplished much, He was a great architect, a great builder. He had built structures like the the Jerusalem temple and stables and mansions and structures that were um, uh, regarded by people of the surrounding nations. He had, uh, at his... At his access, he, he knew all of the famous people. He himself was a celebrity, and he knew all of the celebrities. And he hung out with the celebrities. He had great recognition. Pleasure, anything that he wanted, was at his disposal. He enjoyed the greatest art, statues and paintings, and whatever was artistically Valuable he had. He explored and availed himself of the most talented entertainment. And having left no stone unturned to find the answer for the meaning of life, he found all of these things lacking. None of them, he discovered, were ultimate. They are all great in and of their place. They all have some value, but they are not ultimate. They do not give me the meaning of life. They do not answer for me what is the meaning of life. Not the greatest pleasure, not the greatest celebrity, not the greatest fame, not fortune. None of those things provide an answer to the question, what is life all about? And then as he continued his search for the meaning of life, he recognized a few few things like life can be unfair. We can probably all relate to that. And he saw that it was unfair. Um, he, he recognized that its unfairness was tied to the fact that men are by human beings, by nature, um, are corrupt. We seek out our own pleasure, our own desires. We look out for the good of ourselves and not always for the good of others. And life can be unfair and life can be uncertain. And then he discovered there is one thing, even though life is uncertain, there is one thing that is certain. And that is we all die. Life is unfair. One day is great, the next day is not. And then you die. Uncertainties are certain, as is death. And he advised, therefore, it's probably wise to prepare for death. 
One thing he concludes then in his search is that, folks, you and I are not in control, but there is a God, there is a creator in heaven who is in control. And that life under the sun, that is living under the sun, living in this fallen world, living as though we are the masters of the universe, is contrasted by the preacher with um, living life in the realm of the creator God. So living life for ourselves or living life in in adherence to the laws given to us by our creator. Those are his two... um, Big contrast, life under the sun, living for ourselves, living for fame, living for money, living for pleasure, living for celebrity. It is not ultimate and it is empty. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But living a life under the reality that there is a God who has called us to follow him and that he has given us great and wondrous things, not only gives us uh, pleasure in this life, but it also prepares us for the day, for the certainty of death. The preacher basically has done this. He has stripped away every human answer to the question, what is life all about? He has stripped away every human answer. They have all fallen short. None of them, none of them are ultimate And he has left us with this, that God is the ruler of all. And life is only meaningful when life is lived with God as ultimate. That's where, that's a basic summary of the book of Ecclesiastes. Two weeks ago, um, we, uh, in, in the text we were looking at, we saw an admonition by the preacher. The preacher has kind of gotten away from the question of the meaning of life and he's gotten down to the, the, the living out. If God is creator and God is ultimate and God has called us to live in relationship to him, then what does that look like? Are there any practical applications to that? And the last um, message we saw that perhaps the, the, we, we could summarize the, the last sermon a couple of weeks ago with two words, be wise. Be wise. You can go back and listen to that message or if you need the notes, I'll be happy to send them to you. But be wise. As we look forward today, the preacher is going to continue in his applications of his finding. And continuing on with the question, well, since life is unfair and death is certain and God is creator and Lord of all, how then shall we live? Last time he said, well, first of all, you should live in wisdom. Be wise. Today, his focus is uh, is going to be on be bold. Take a chance. Take a risk. As we go forward, just a quick little preview of where we're going to go next week. He actually um, will give us, he will give us two other commands and that is to be joyful and to be godly. So if we look at the the last chapter and this chapter, it is be wise, be bold, be godly, and be joyful. Today we're just going to handle the be bold section and this is in verses Uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 11. So, be bold. If you will, let's read our text. Um, Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. 
chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Um, Listen to the inerrant word of the living God. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So like I said, the context of our of our words today is to be wise, that is, skillful living in alignment with the things of God. The application, being wise, wisdom is the application of biblical principles to one's life, resulting in a Godward inclination of the heart. Living wisely is intent on honoring God. But let me say this, living wisely, being intent To honor God in all that we say and do is not a risk-free adventure. Living wisely comes with risk. Living a life of faith involves risk. I know sometimes we we think, oh, well, if I'm I'm living for God, then everything's going to go nice and smooth. And uh, everything's going to go just just wonderful. And I'm going to be healed of all of my diseases and every business venture I take off on is going to prosper and I'm going to be wealthy and I'm going to have all of these things. Everything's going to be perfectly smooth. My kids are going to grow up and they're never going to be kids. Well, there's just nowhere in Scripture that would affirm that. Living wisely, however, is not a risk-free adventure. Living wisely involves some risk. And that's where this text begins. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Right? So be bold. Cast your bread upon the waters. Right? So that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? So we're going to go out and find a lake and get a loaf of bread and throw it on the water and then wait a couple of days and then it'll come back to us and then what? We're going to eat it? This is a a very challenging passage of text and there are a number of ways that that it can be... um, uh, can be understood. All of them are, most of them are, are, are really, really good, except if you take it literal. He is not saying go get a loaf of bread and throw it on the water and then wait for it to come back. Um, it'll just be moldy and nasty and you don't want it. So what's the meaning of this? What does he mean by cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days? Well, I think there are, the, the, the traditional way that this has been understood has been that what the preacher is speaking of here, what the author is speaking of is um, 
this casting your bread upon the water um, is referring to giving and being charitable, being generous in your charity. And there are a number of reasons why I won't go into all of the details. There are some some Arabic uh, proverbs that 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 fit with this. But the idea here is that God is honored and he will repay. And we see plenty of biblical examples of this in um, Proverbs chapter 19.7 says that the one who, who um, uh, gives generously to the poor loans to the Lord, loans to God. And so God will repay those who give to the poor. And we see a number of different places where um, being generous to the poor is seen as something that honors God and that God does reward. So it has been understood traditionally as referring to um, giving charitably to those who are in need. And then in verse 2 where it says um, give a portion to seven or even to eight simply means um, give to, to as many people as possible. Don't choose just one individual and give to the give to that person generously, but spread your wealth around. That's the traditional view. And I think there, there's a, a lot to merit that, but I'm a little bit more convinced by a, I guess, a not-so-traditional view, and that this idea of casting your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days, is a reference, it's speaking of a business venture or a commercial pursuit. And that is... Um, if, if you were a farmer in the ancient Near East and where you live, it's prime property for growing grain and you can grow grain and you do a good job of growing grain. But here's the thing. There is no metal where you live. There is no iron. There is no ability to make um, farming instruments. So what do you do? Well, you're going to trade some of your grain for somebody who is able to produce iron and farming instruments. We just call it bartering. So the idea here is you will put your bread upon a ship and it's going to go and it's going to exchange your grain for something else, precious metals, um, spices, uh, linen, fabric. That type of thing. And after many days, it will come back for you. So basically, the idea here is the individual is trading for goods. This we see actually Solomon himself. Solomon, who's the author of Ecclesiastes, we see him in chapter 9, uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 26 through 28, and chapter 10, verse 27. We see him doing this exact thing. In fact, look at chapter 10, verse 27. Um, the historian writes about Solomon. It says, And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku, and the king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot... I don't know why I'm reading that. 10... Oh, 10.22. Sorry. That was just bonus scripture. <laughs> now the, the scripture that I meant to refer to, 22. For the king, Solomon, 
had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And so we see that Solomon would uh, trade with foreign countries and bring in that which he lacked. But here's the thing. Sea travel was risky, especially then. There was no guarantee that if you put your grain on a ship, it was going to make it to where it needed to go. And then there was no guarantee that if it got there, it was going to make it back. Sea travel was a risky business. But the, but the author here, Solomon, said, cast your bread upon the waters and after many days, you will find it. In other words, take a risk. And after many days, the idea will come back to you. After many days, be patient. Ships sent out will finally return with some profit. We might say it this way. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. So take a risk. Take a chance. Otherwise, you're just going to eat grain all of your life. Take a chance. Be bold. And then he goes on and he says, give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster might happen on the earth. Give a portion to seven or eight. In other words, that ship could sink. Put grain on a bunch of different ships, perhaps. And somebody's probably going to make it to the other side and make it back. Diversify, right? If you are involved in any kind of business or investment, you probably diversify. We would put it this way. We would probably not say give a portion to seven or eight. We would say this. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. All right. We also have a proverb for the same thing. Even though probably, well, I shouldn't say that. If I was preaching in the city, I could say none of us probably have chickens and, and eggs, but most of you have chickens and, and eggs. And so anyways, doesn't work in a rural area. But the idea is give a portion to seven or eight. Diversify. Put, take a risk, but, but be wise in how you take the risk because you don't know. You don't know what disaster might happen on the earth. And before I just quickly unpack this, let me just point out this phrase, you don't know. This is a key phrase in these six verses. I believe it's mentioned four or five times in these six verses, the phrase, you don't know. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what disaster may happen when you take a business risk. It may be successful. Your business may take off. You may do really, really well. You may make a bunch of money. Or you may not. You might have a sure thing, an investment, this is it. This Bankman Freed character, he knows what he's doing. He's going to make us a ton of money. If you thought that, you've now lost it all. You probably should have diversified. You don't know. In other words, wisdom recognizes our limitations. I don't know everything. We know that we don't know. Maybe that's the best way to put it. We know that we don't know everything. So take a risk, 
Be wise in it. Diversify. Because you don't know what's going to happen. The preacher goes on, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The preacher has just encouraged us to take a risk. But he also realizes there are some who attempt or want to live a risk-free life. Some are so risk-averse that they end up doing nothing. The preacher recognizes there are some natural events that are beyond our control. The clouds are full of rain. They empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. There are some things that we have absolutely no control over. We don't control the rain. And we don't control the snow or the weather or the heat or the sun. None of us have any control over that and none of us control if a tree falls in the forest and which way it's going to fall. But these uncertainties should not encourage inaction. People might say, well, I don't, who knows? I mean, it's, I'm going to take a risk. Who knows? It could be dangerous. I could lose area. And then you end up doing nothing. The preacher is saying, take a risk, but be wise. And in verse 4, what we actually see is the person who's waiting for the perfect time to do something. He who observes the wind will not sow. Oh, it looks like a windy day. It's not, uh, better not sow. And he who reclouds the, regards the clouds will not reap. Oh, it's going to rain, so I better not get out there and reap. Basically, you get nothing. Waiting for the perfect time is unwise. Watching the weather, the person is watching the weather but not farming. In other words, the paralysis of inaction produces nothing. If we fail to invest wisely, if we fail to give generously, um, that just simply equals unproductive work. So you're thinking, well, this sounds good. Maybe this would be better at a business school than a church service. My exhortation to all of us is to be bold and in the life of faith we are not to hold on to what we have we are to send it out we are not to say oh well you know if if the conditions were perfect then I would step out in ministry. Then I would share my faith with somebody. If everything just works out and all everything is just perfect, then I'm going to do something. Then I'm going to commit myself to prayer. Then I will be a person of faith. But the life of faith, in the life of faith, we are told we are not to hang on to what we have. We are to share the gospel. Risky business. You don't know if somebody's going to receive it or not. We are to step step out in ministry, church. Has God placed something on your heart and you're like going, man, this is what the church could use? Be bold. Take a chance. Take a risk. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but take a risk.
meet a visitor. Oh, that's scary. Yeah, it might be for some of us, it's scary to say hello to a new person. Meet a visitor, make a friend. Yeah, they may end up being a terrible person. I don't know. You don't know either. But be bold. Be w- Take a risk. Serve others. Oh, but what if I get used? Or you can just sit at home and do nothing. I think the idea here is take a risk. Start a family. Get married. Instead of waiting, do what you can do with the things that God has given you. Story I I share often here, and it's been a while since I've shared it, but I'll share it again. There are very few illustrations I have that are unique. I've been here 20, what, 22 years, so I've pretty much used up all of my examples. Um, so I have to repeat them. <clears throat> we had a lady here, um, her and her husband, great, great, Great folks, Joan and Bill. Some of you remember Joan and Bill. We love Joan and Bill. Miss them to this day. But I hadn't been here very long, and Joan came to me. She was a seamstress, and she came to me, and she said, here's what I want to do. I want to um, set up shop downstairs so that people in the community who need their clothes repaired, mended, hemmed, buttons sewn on, um, that I would do that for them. I was new here, hadn't been here for very long, a few years maybe, and I thought to myself, that's not going to fly. There's not a chance in the world that that's going to work. But I said, yeah, if that's what you want to do, go go for it. And I thought, nobody is going to come here to get their buttons sewn on. And I was right. Nobody came to get their buttons sewed on, and nobody came to get their hem sewed, or their, I don't know, a shirt altered. Nobody. But while they were waiting for people to show up, they said, you know what, why don't we make some clothes for some of the kids over at the school over there? So they started making jackets and shirts and pants, and they started delivering them. And then, you know, the school's like going, oh, this is awesome. We have people who who need jackets. We have kids who need jackets, and and they, they need school clothes, and this is great that you're providing them. And then she said, well, you know what, instead of us just making stuff, why don't you, why don't you tell us about their... the size we need to make. So they started making that. And then they said, you know what? That doesn't work so well. Why don't you just send the kids by? We'll measure them and they can pick out the clothing. We got tons of cloth. We'll just pick, they'll pick out the clothing. We had a sweatshop downstairs. I mean, we'd go and pick up some of the, the people who who were kind of homebound. They would come and have lunch. And Joan had this little sweatshop downstairs and she is making clothes for the community. Why? Take a chance. Take a risk. That's one that worked. Well, actually, I was right. It didn't work. What she wanted to do did not work. What came of it, nobody even had an, uh, even an inkling of an idea of what was going to happen. And uh, so we had just, a, like I said, we had a little sweatshop downstairs. The people who were, who were kind of shut in and homebound, we would go and pick them up and they'd come and have lunch and, and hang out with the ladies downstairs. And it was a great time of fellowship and we met the needs in, in the community. It was awesome. All because someone said, you know what? I have this ability. I have this skill. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to take a chance. 
Instead of saying, well, you know, the time isn't just right, or I don't have enough material, I don't have enough cloth, I don't have this, I don't have that, and you know, we should wait for the, the perfect scenario. Just did what needed, just did what was on her heart. You see, folks, there is no perfect time. There is no perfect time to start a ministry. There is no perfect time to start a church. Charlie started a church in the middle of COVID. Right? Does that make sense? No? But here we are three years later and we have a great, a wonderful church in Payson because somebody said, well, let's just go. There is no perfect time. If I were to say, have kids... When's the perfect time to have kids? Those of you who have kids, when's the perfect time? Yeah, there is no perfect time, right? So, so if you want to have kids, have kids. There's no perfect time to get married. Well, you know what? I'm in love with this person and we love the Lord and we want to, and everything is, we got to wait till I get my right degree and, you know, I get my house and we get everything. It's like, there's no perfect time. God has called you to marry that young man or that young woman. Get married. Take a chance. There is no perfect time. Too many people wait for the ideal circumstance and soon life has passed them by. And it is possible that we will fail. But the words of the preacher is never stop investing. God's view of his people is not affected or determined by the outcome. If you try something and it doesn't work, God doesn't say, oh well, what a loser. God's view of you is not determined by your success or failure in business or in ministry or in sharing the gospel or in serving your neighbor or in loving your enemy. God will be honored by those things. And diversify. Share the gospel with many, not just one, lots of people. Well, what if they reject? Yeah, they, they probably will. Many will reject. Not everybody is going to respond to your hospitality. I'm going to invite a whole bunch of people over to my house and not everybody will respond positively. And yes, you may be taken advantage of. But cast your bread upon the waters and you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Do what God has called you to do. Take a chance. Take a risk. preacher then goes on, says, as you do not know the way of the spirit, that the spirit comes into the bones of the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, cast your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. And here, the preacher continues on with the idea of the the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. And he describes the mysteries of God with two analogies. And the first one is ensoulment. That is, you don't know. You do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. You do not know how ensoulment takes place in a child. In my theology class, we talk about this. We talk about the issue of ensoulment. When is a person, um, when is a soul... Produced, 
given by God to a human person? And it's an important question. Bill Clinton, you may remember him, said that ensoulment takes place when a child takes its first breath. He was not acting as a theologian, but a proponent of an abortion. And therefore, we are not killing a child because it's not a child until it takes its first breath. It does not have a soul until it takes its first breath. The author of of Ecclesiastes would differ. He says, you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of the woman with child. The idea here really though is you do not know. Once again, we see that phrase and twice. You do not know. You don't know the way the spirit comes into a child, so you don't know the work of God. This is something over which you have no control. You do not determine ensoulment. You did not establish it. You do not make it happen. It is the mystery of creation and the providence of God on display. You don't know. Folks, position, education, titles, charm, etc. will not result in God seeking your counsel. Tell me, so-and-so, when do you think I should ensoul that child? He is not seeking your counsel. He does it as he so desires, and you have no control, and you don't even know when it takes place. That which in, let me just state, that which is in the woman's womb is identified as a child. Church, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. What God does in our own lives, outside of the womb, is no less mysterious. He's just saying, listen, God is mysterious. We do not know everything that God does. We don't know how God um, imparts a soul to a, a child in the womb of his mother. And we don't know the plans of God in our lives. Take a risk. Take a chance. Be bold. Live out the, the ministry that God has given you. Live your faith. Live in submission to the living God. Will I be successful? I don't know. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. So Paul writes, he says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. I planted, I did, I, I took a risk. I planted a church. Apollos did his job. He came along and watered it. Neither of us had any part in the growth of what was planted and watered. God caused the growth. Paul is not saying, well, then maybe we shouldn't plant or maybe we shouldn't water since we don't know how it all works. We don't have the answer to all the questions. So maybe we'll just stay and not do anything. No, plant, water, and God caused the growth. The task that we are called to carry out in faithfulness, and yet it is God who brings the result. Share the gospel with somebody. I don't know how it's going to work out. God works it out. God has assigned gifts to his servants, that is us. And we are to use them boldly, and God brings forth the fruit. God gives gifts. Every single one of you, God has gifted for the work of ministry. Every single one of you. 
use those gifts. But I don't know what's going to happen. What if I'm embarrassed? What if I, something bad happens? I don't know. God has called you to do these things, and that involves risk. Live boldly. Step out and be bold. God brings forth the fruit. John chapter 3, verse 8. It's another interesting parallel. Jesus picks up, I, I think Jesus is picking up this theme in John chapter 3, verse 8. And you all know John chapter 3. Jesus is speaking with uh, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, and he's told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus isn't quite getting what's going on. And in chapter 3, verse 8, this is what Jesus said. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You hear the wind. You see its effect, but you have no idea of where it's coming from or where it's going, and you have no control of it. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Take advantage of opportunities to declare the kingdom of God. But just as wind blows and you do not know where it comes from, so is everyone born of the Spirit. The wind and the Spirit operate outside of our control. We can observe, but we cannot direct. I can observe the wind, but I don't determine. Well, when I'm riding my bike and I'm in the headwind, I don't determine which way the wind blows. I wish I could. It is outside of my control. Darn it. But the effects of both the Spirit doing what the Spirit does and the wind blowing where the wind blows is obvious. And it is beyond our jurisdiction. When the Spirit of God is moving, you have no control over the Spirit of God. But it's obvious. When you share the gospel, when you do that which God has um, put upon your heart and equipped you to do. I don't know how it works. But you see the effect of the Spirit. Church, the Spirit has freedom. You do not know whose heart God will open to receive the gift of salvation, but you will see its effects. The mysteries of God illustrated in the growth of a child prompt us to consider other mysteries, such as why do my prayers go unanswered? Why does the gospel seem to take root in one area and not another? Why did I respond to the gospel and not somebody else? We do not know the work of God who makes everything, but that should not hinder us from doing the work of God. And then the second analogy that the preacher uses is that of sowing. In the morning you sow your seed. There are two commands. Take a risk. Follow wisdom, but how it all works out is entrusted to God who is faithful. The preacher uses the mystery of God to call us to greater faithfulness. The day gives opportunities. The mysteries of God are not to say, why bother? Well, I don't know if it's going to rain. I don't know. It's like, so why bother? Try all you can to share the gospel in an uncertain world and then leave the results to God. Church, this is liberating. I do not need to bring the kingdom. I can just do what God has called me to do and let God do what he's supposed to do. And however he's going to work it out, it's not on my shoulders. I just need to be obedient to the things that God has called me to do and I'll let God work it out. How liberating that is. I hear people say, oh man, I mean, I've been there too. It's like, oh, if I'd only shared, I shared the gospel with somebody. If I just said this, then that would have worked out better. Or if I'd only said, not said that, then they probably would have responded positively. Or if I'd only been more bold, or if I'd only done this or that. Church, 
be faithful to the thing that God has called you to do and let God do what God wants to do. What a liberating thing that is. You're free to serve God and the results are not your for, for you to figure out. Sow God's word into your own life. That's why we say read the Bible maybe in a year. So God, so well, nothing will happen. You'd be amazed. God might just do something amazing in your life. You don't know. A couple passages of text that are meaningful. They're helpful here. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. It's one you all know. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So my word goes forth. Just like the rain comes down and waters the land and brings forth vegetation, so my word goes forth. Folks, share God's word it will produce its desired effect. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Pre- Paul writes, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So, so cast your bread upon the waters and do so abundantly. Take a risk and be abundant in your generosity. Be abundant in the things that God has called you to do. Do not sow sparingly. Do so abundantly. And yeah, it's not a risk-free venture. Sowing and reaping are often associated with the Word of God. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Church, be bold. I'll conclude with this. God has called us to live wisely. We saw that in the previous message. The church, living wisely involves risk. So be bold. Take a risk. Let me share, before I go to the practical stuff, let me give you the meat. Christ has removed all eternal risk church, Christ has removed all eternal risk. That is, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ. John 11.25 says, the one who believes in me will live even if he dies. Christ has removed all eternal risk. And with that certainty, we are released to live in freedom and lay aside the idol of comfort and safety. We are free to love as Christ loved. We are free to love our enemies as Christ did. We can bless those who curse us. We can pray for those who despise us. We do not know how God will use this risk. It may be the means by which salvation comes or it may be the means by which God delivers us into his glorious presence. I don't know. Nor do you. But it's worth the risk because there is no God. Jesus has taken away all the eternal risk. The price of following Christ in America has been raised. It is less safe than it was 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 5 years ago. It is much less safe to be a follower of Christ today. The price has been raised. But we look back again to Esther 2,500 years ago. I'll try. 
And if I perish, I perish. So what does this mean for our church? What does it mean for our mission? Church, we are called to love one another, and that involves risk. It means being vulnerable. We are called to put other people's needs above our own. So when we gather together, we might uh, share a scripture with them rather than tell them how bad our whatever inflammation is inflaming and how bad a week we had or whatever. We can ask them how they're doing and pray with them. We put their needs above our own. Church, attend a Bible study. Serve where needed. Put away the sin that so easily entangles. Respond to the conviction that you are experiencing. Call upon the name of the Lord. Yeah, it's going to disrupt your life. But now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. Two of my favorite parables are basically kind of the same. The parable of the treasure in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price. For both of them, the merchant found something of great value and he sold everything he had to obtain that which is of great value. And I often ask myself the question, what did it cost the man? And the answer is it cost him everything. And I ask, what did it cost the man? And the answer is it cost him nothing. Because what he received in return was of far greater value than what he gave. And so is salvation. Will it cost you? Yeah, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything you love, everything you desire. It's going to cost you everything. What's it going to cost you? It's going to cost you nothing. Because that which you gain is so far superior to that which is given up is not even in comparison. Today is the day of salvation. Church, folks, take a risk. Church, take a risk. If you're an unbeliever, take a follow Christ. Yeah, it's going to cost you a lot. Lay down. Jesus himself said, if you want to be my follower, follower of mine, you need to lay down your life, take up your cross, and come and follow me. Well, that sounds risky. I'll lose it all. Church, I know that sounds risky, but let me assure you, there is no safer place than laying down your life, taking up your cross, and following after him. That is the safest place you will ever be. Our Father God, we thank you and we praise you for these very practical words from the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who has taken away all eternal risk, that those who die will live, and that we need not fear those who can heal the body, but because you are the one who has brought us salvation for our soul and our eternal life is with you. We are safe and secure that nobody can harm us eternally. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to be risk takers, especially when it comes to standing up for the things that you've called us to stand up for. Give us wisdom, Lord God, to live in accordance with your purposes. And knowing that there is risk in that, that we would be bold and we would go forth this week and be bold with the gospel. These things we ask in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.